0: NFTs have this combination of unique properties that make them particularly well-suited to represent a proof of ownership. So the first is that they are unique. You can't have two NFTs that are the same. They all have a unique address. The second is that they are publicly verifiable, which means that if I own an NFT and it's on a public blockchain, anyone can go and verify that I am the owner.
1: Welcome to The Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of unstoppable domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GM, GM welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host, and today we're going to be talking about NFT use cases and concepts, but simplified, which I think is something that we really need in the Web3 and crypto space. I'm joined by Shiv, co-founder of Magic, and also a content creator on Twitter. I'm loving the threads, the visual explanations and breakdowns. So I think Shiv, you got a, a lot to share with us today, and going to be a really good conversation. How you doing?
0: Doing great, thank you, Josh excited to be here.
1: Yes, I'm excited too. I I really like putting out Twitter threads covering podcast episodes and crypto topics that I find interesting. And I've seen yours just pop up on my timeline time and time again. And I think a big reason around that is because of the kind of, I don't know what the right word is. It's the, the layman's terms, or sometimes it's the TLDR, or just taking complex ideas and explaining them in simple form. And crypto is Crypto is a tricky space, but uh, you you really break it down well. How did you get drawn to that in the first place?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of my content ideas actually come from me trying to explain something to friends who are non-crypto friends. And then I realize, wow, this is kind of complicated. And then when I'm trying to write the threads, I sort of try to write them from that perspective, uh, imagining that my audience is a non-crypto native audience. Not for all of them, but for most of them, that's how I try to write them.
1: Makes sense. Basically, it's it's happening every week where I need to explain some NFT concept to someone who really has... It's starting from scratch. And I always find myself pausing for a moment and thinking, okay, where do I even begin to start? Like, do you want to talk about this for one minute? Or do you want to talk about this for an hour? Because that kind of changes how I approach it. So it's no easy task. Oh, yeah. Let's start off with this pod letting telling everyone how you got into crypto in the first place and like how that led you to founding Magic Labs and and getting into this content creation.
0: I actually got into crypto in 2017. I was in college at the time and I was playing. I used to play a lot of poker. We used to settle our transactions in crypto. And so a lot of my friends were banned on Venmo. We didn't have a better way to settle transactions. So it was primarily out of convenience and necessity that I got into it. And that was that was just my introduction into crypto. I was, I didn't end up like buying a ton of crypto at that time or anything, but I just started using it. I was majoring in computer science and economics and crypto was pretty much squarely at the intersection of that. So once I learned about it, I kind of got drawn in. I ended up writing my senior year paper on it, my senior economics paper. You know, in the process of researching and thinking about all of that, I got really hooked. And ever since then, I've been, you know, kind of just completely hooked into the space.
1: Yeah, and you went to school at Columbia, right, in New York? Yeah, that's right. What's the what's the energy and the environment with crypto there? I'm I'm just curious, you know, just hearing about what it's like at different well-known universities around the country.
0: Sure. So I graduated in 2018. Um, you know, and at the time, it was crypto was a lot less developed than it is today. I think there was still like a decent presence. Like there were a couple of clubs and I I met quite a few people through my interest in crypto who I'm still friends with and some of whom now work full-time in crypto or in Web3. But it's hard to compare because I think that if I was to go back today, I imagine that there's just, you know, I I would imagine there's five times more interest now than there was in 2018.
1: That's cool to hear that it it had a presence then and it's still growing. But yeah, economics and... In computer science, a hundred percent right. Crypto falls right in that perfect Venn diagram. And post college, then you went on to work for Google, right?
0: Yeah, I worked for at a startup for a bit, uh, and then I worked at Google after that until a few months ago.
1: Cool. So yeah, so I gotta get your perspective on Google for a second here. If you can share, like, what what do you th- see as as Google's play in in Web three going forward? You know, do you think they're going to Embrace with open arms some of this, like NFT tech, or maybe in, in certain pockets.
0: I think about this too. So, and I think it can go either way. Like, I think if you look at Facebook, they're embracing NFTs, and they've they've started adding NFT collectibles to to Instagram as an experiment. But then, if you look at Microsoft, they you know they banned NFTs from from their gaming ecosystem. There was a whole thing with Minecraft that happened a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's tricky because. Web3 is a threat to centralized models. Um, so if you look at YouTube, for example, YouTube has a take rate of 30, 40 percent, right? And there's no data portability. And some of these things that we we can talk about more in detail in a bit. But but Web3 promises all of these things that threaten that model. It's kind of like, how do you embrace, how, how do be these big companies embrace a technology that is in some ways threatening their core model. And I don't think that's true for every, every vertical that Google is in. I, I believe that you know they'll probably have a presence with crypto in certain verticals where it makes sense for them to, uh, to integrate crypto on the back end, and where it's just more efficient, right? Maybe in something to do with payments or uh, it's really hard for me to say because they do so many things, but I feel like there probably will be some, some level of uh, integration.
1: For sure. I don't know. It makes me think about how just the music industry is such a good example with, and in books too, you know, Barnes & Noble, you know, new tech comes along that threatens your core business model and you don't look to accept it or integrate it, right? And then in some cases, they get completely destroyed because of that decision, right? And in some cases, I'm sure it's a good one. So, but yeah, you're right. Google's in so many different areas that it wouldn't make sense for them to them to become a complete crypto company but i'm sure there are some really interesting uses there
0: yeah and the netflix versus blockbuster case is a pretty good example of what you're talking about i don't think web3 is a uh, a replacement for every web2 service so i don't know if it how much it'll threaten you know a lot of google's business but obviously there are some overlapping areas where web3 might be a better solution
1: yeah and you mentioned that you know You were at Google as of just a few months ago, and now full-time magic and creating content. So, you know, talk me through that decision. You know, why did you want to jump into content creation full-time, especially around this topic?
0: Yeah. So, I think I didn't necessarily want to jump into content creation full-time. I wanted to jump into crypto full-time. Google was a great place to work. I learned a ton. There's, uh, you know, the way that they organize tens of thousands of engineers to build product is is Fantastic. But I think I knew that I'm so interested in crypto. I was spending every available minute just like trying to read and learn and uh, be in the crypto space. You know, it was pretty clear to me that I I wanted to work in this space. What specifically I wanted to do is still unclear and, you know, still figuring that out as I go. Uh, But I knew that I want to be spending all my time in this space and on something that I'm truly passionate about. And so content creation was kind of a start to that. I started writing on Twitter primarily as a means to meet more people in Web3. I learned a lot about it. I read a lot about it all the time. I I use the applications, I invest in it, all of that, but I don't actually know too many people who work in Web3. And so I figured that one way to get started might be to start writing on Twitter and reaching out to people and just kind of getting more involved with the community. That's kind of how I got started. And then when I saw, um, you know, good reception on some of my posts, I kind of doubled down and it really has allowed me to meet all kinds of great people in the space. So, so that's why I keep doing it. It's like I get to meet great people in
1: Web3. Totally. And what opportunities have come out of that? I mean, it seems like with it, with magic and it's magic labs, right? The the sole purpose is to create these simple. The simple Web3 crypto explanations and products and services.
0: So we're still figuring out what exactly Magic is going to build. Uh, we're a team of four co-founders. Three of us are devs uh, with you know strong engineering backgrounds, and we all like are super invested in the Web3 space. Our overarching goal is to make Web3 more accessible. You know we started by. Looking at the multi-chain DeFi landscape and trying to simplify multi-chain transactions and making them one-click, um, which was primarily good for yield farmers and for some NFT-related use cases. But the market, the users for those uh, markets have has died down like 95% in the last two months. So we felt like it's not worth fighting an uphill battle for to productionize this and uh, and continue with this. And and also, you know, if you zoom out, it it sort of speaks to The fact that there are more fundamental problems in the Web3 space that are worth solving. And so we're still exploring those and trying to figure out exactly where we fit in. That should give you a rough sense of what we're doing.
1: No, yeah, that's cool. I'm curious, is there like uh, any thoughts on implementing NFTs or token gating access to the content you're making in the meantime?
0: Not right now. I don't want to gate any access to content because I feel like if you're, especially if you're making content that is educational, then token gating or any kind of gating is counterproductive to making educational content. Yeah, I mean, as of right now, no, no plans.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for all that background. I'm, you know, as a content creator myself, just super interested in hearing your journey. And I think that... Kind of some of what you described is what a lot of people are probably looking for. A lot of people listening to this pod and people we're interacting with on Twitter, they're invested in this space, interested in this space, spending your time reading and learning about it, right? But a big part is, all right, how do I connect with that community? You found a way to do that through writing. Um, I found a way through writing also and and podcasts as well. And so it's expanded my network. It sounds like it's expanded yours. So if you're listening to this and and you want to tap in, you know, I think a great way to tap into the Web3 community isn't just buying an expensive NFT and, you know, being able to change your profile picture. It's sharing what you're thinking and what you're learning with others. And you'll probably find a lot of like-minded people. Yeah, Absolutely. Well with that let's do let's jump into the future of NFTs. It's really like the meat of what I want this podcast to be about and you put out a great thread covering a bunch of different use cases. So I want to talk about I don't even know how many we have lined up here. We might have somewhere between 8 to 10 really good use cases that are worth talking about in depth. So let's start high level since you're the simplification king here. What's the what's the value of nfts like why is the internet a better place for them and you know if while you're explaining some of this to me i think it'd be cool to put me in the shoes of someone who is that beginner friend so like i'm asking you shiv like i'm your friend you know i'm saying what's all this nft stuff you're talking about and like you you have to tell me what the value is what do you say yeah
0: so i think the the key with nfts is, is that they are a way to represent proof of ownership of something. And it's easier to understand with digital assets because you can actually prove that you can own them. But uh, I wrote another follow-up thread to my future of NFTs one, which was about the properties of NFTs, right? And that kind of explains a little bit about why uh, NFTs have this combination of unique properties that make them particularly well-suited to represent a proof of ownership. So the first is that they are unique. You can't have two NFTs that are the same. They all have a unique address. The second is that they are publicly verifiable, which means that if I own an NFT and it's on a public blockchain, anyone can go and verify that I am the owner. Which, you know, which when we get to the use cases, it uh, it starts to become clear why that's why that's so important, right? Uh, college diplomas and you know degrees are something that I always go back to. Is you know there's there's no proof. Like the only way to get actual proof in the non NFT world. Uh, or in a world without NFTs for things like that would be to, you know, ask the actual university or ask me for a PDF, which is, you know, as anyone knows is easily photoshoppable. And that's just one example, right? That's the same is true for certificates. It's true for medical records, for legal documents, and all kinds of things that people have an incentive to forge. Uh, Identity is another big one. Like there's a massive, you know, identity theft problem in in many parts of the world, including the US, if you want a digital identity, how do you actually have proof that the person is who they say they are? Right? So, um, so NFTs are a way to solve a bunch of these problems. And part of the reason is because of this unique, uh, these features of being unique and being publicly verifiable. And then there's a few others, which, you know, which um,
1: Can I jump in real quick? Of course. Yeah, yeah, so you said you said unique and you know, I'm I'm looking at all these pictures of NFTs online and I'm thinking like, okay, I see two pick I, I just saved it's it's so typical in like Twitter, everyone's like, Oh, I just right click saved. So but it's not the picture, the the visual component of the NFT that really matters, is it? It's the underlying token, right, that's unique. And can you explain a little deeper on on that?
0: Sure yeah it's it's the ownership of the token that actually matters that's the only part that you know that becomes really important because sure you can right click and save the actual image and similarly with anything else um but what you're really getting with nfts on a public blockchain is that ownership history right so anyone know if you right click save and you mint your own nft anyone can go and see that your nft is not the same one that that you know mine is it's a different one. You minted the NFT yourself. I bought mine for a hundred ETH, let's say. And that's where that difference comes in is that when you have that verifiability and you have that, you know, unique ownership, uh, you just can't, you just can't forge it. It's easy for anyone to go and verify. And maybe the, you know, I, I imagine that the UX layers around this will also get better over time so that the things that we care to verify are just, you know inherently verified for us through a ux layer like a blue check mark sort of thing
1: yeah and that's something i kind of wanted to hit on is you you said the words like anyone can go in and verify and i'm thinking you know i don't think anyone can, can go in and verify it's actually complex to understand how to read some of the blockchain data and i actually just started taking this this course put out around like data on the blockchain and be able to run like SQL queries uh, on like Dune analytics to start being able to dive into some of this. But is the barrier to entry to verify things on the blockchain like high? I think the answer to that is probably yes, right now. But is it the fact that people actually are going to go in and verify or just the fact that we know we can? That's important. You know what I mean?
0: I think the fact that anyone can verify it is important. I think the complexity of verification means that not everyone should be verifying and and this is a problem that I think will be solved by UX, you know, by UX solutions. So the things that we care to verify, someone is going to build a UX to make it simpler to verify those things. You know, there's a larger point here that I'd like to touch upon, which is that I do believe education in the crypto space is important for getting people onboarded right now but I actually think that education is not the solution I think education is a bandage and the solution is better products that don't require such a steep learning curve for which we need a lot more infrastructure and we need a lot more things to enable those better products so it might take years but I don't think it's I don't think it's reasonable to expect everyone in the world to have to learn all the ways to keep their, all the self-custody, you know, all the things that they need to do to keep their funds safe in self-custody wallets. I don't think it's reasonable for everyone in the world to have to know how, how gas fees work and how, what the difference is between the gas limit and the gas price and GUI And, you know, it's just, it's unreasonable to expect everyone to do that. So I think that all of these are, Yes, for now, we need education around those, but eventually what we need is just UX solutions that abstract away all of these complexities from the end user. So the end user can come in and get what they want to out of the product without having to go through all of these these intermediary steps.
1: 100%. You kind of... Did all the work for me here in a little bit because some themes I like to hit on on this podcast are ownership, identity, and user experience. And I mean that you just brought it full circle talking about why NFTs are important. So the the user experience is something I'm really hoping we get to see better across all these DApps we're using and kind of crypto applications and NFT use cases. So it's a it's a big focus for us at Unstoppable Domains too. I mean, even something as simple as how you buy an nft like it's your i think your comment around not everyone should need to know how to do all this stuff also blends itself to not everyone should have to buy nfts even with crypto like you shouldn't be restricted to getting into an nft community or something just by having to download metamask and get eth on to it and then figure out how to sign that transaction like that is one way to do it i think it's a fantastic way to do it but um when you think about like global adoption, you know, we should be thinking about interacting with crypto rails still in a familiar payment mechanism that, you know, we're used to like on-ramping via credit card, for example. So UX is huge. So
0: yeah, and it, and it is getting better and, you know, but but like you said, I just think it's pretty unreasonable to think everyone will be able to go in. And when when your transaction fails, not everyone is going to have the knowledge to know how to figure out on Etherscan why it failed. And, you know, it's just these things are iterative improvements that I think we'll absolutely see over the next few years.
1: Totally. Cool. Well, let's talk about some use cases now that we have a baseline understanding of NFTs. So, you know, the first one here that I've got on my list is is artwork. And really, it's the first one because it was the first use case that really seemed to take off in the NFT bull run last year. So why do you think artwork, you know, was the first to really show us what NFTs can be?
0: I think speculation. Honestly, I think it was, you know, primarily like price goes up kind of thing. Price goes up, it's easy to see what someone bought and like it's a it's a visual medium. So you see that, okay, someone's buying this art and it's going up and, you know, you buy other art. And I, I don't think that artwork is necessarily, I don't think that the reason we saw it pop off is because artwork is, you know, the most valuable NFT use case or, or anything like that. I think there's a few things that, you know, the the speculative value, the fact that it's easy to see and understand for everyone. It's not like this complex abstract thing that you don't understand it's also something that is easy to share. Like, you know, you can share it on Twitter, you can share, you can make it your profile picture, you can do all of these various things with the art. So it, it has that sort of inherent viral potential. And then in the traditional world, art is something which has that subjective value, right? Like how, how why is a Picasso worth a hundred million bucks? No one knows, right? Or There's no like clear reason. There's not like like you can do a financial model behind that. So the same thing is, you know, with NFTs, it's like it's no one really knows what the true value is. So it's uh, or with work. And so it is something that kind of, you know, made it easy for it to pop off in terms of price.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, and another element to it was the collectability of it. it collectibles made sense to people and art was an easy item to collect and uh, make easier to collect than physical art so personally for me i'd actually didn't i, I kind of look around my house right now and thinking about like true pieces of artwork and i might have only had one photography print and all of a sudden nfts come around and i'm able to collect lots of different types of digital art so i found that one to be one that resonated a little bit
0: Totally. And there's also like, you know, the, there's the community aspect that all these NFT projects are trying to build community. Some of them mean that, you know, if you buy a Bored Ape, you're now in a community with Snoop Dogg and a bunch of other people. So, you know, I'm sure those aspects definitely help. But I don't know if I lump them under the artwork use case as much as the membership club use case.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to hit on that in a little bit, some of the, the membership and whatnot. But let's talk about another use case, Identity. I mean, this is a big one for me, you know, big one for unstoppable domains. I I just think this one is probably one of the the biggest problems that crypto has has to solve and is really going to be a major driver of adoption globally. But why do you think identity will be a major NFT use case?
0: I think identity is easy to forge. People have an incentive to forge it. NFTs are a way to prevent against that. And it is as a technology superior to any other way of of having a proof or a representation of something that you own. You own your identity, it is unique, it is something that people want to be able to verify. I'll give you an example. I'm originally from India. I spent a bunch of time in the US. Um, When I have to apply for any kind of immigration forms, they ask you for your documentation, right? They ask you for a PDF or a JPEG of your passport. I don't see how that is proof of anything. Those things are like you, anyone can create a PDF or like a JPEG that says anything. And I don't see how that can possibly be proof of, you know, of anything at all. And similarly with like, you know, anything else that you might imagine, like a bank statement or a or like your address proof or, for, you know, all of these kinds of things, they don't actually prove anything. And which is why you have this, you know, like rampant identity theft problem. If I'm not mistaken, it was something like 15 million Americans uh, have their identity stolen every year, right? And it's, you know, I'm sure this happens in other parts of the world too. So I just see identity like NFTs as a superior technology to represent proof of ownership of something
1: uh, that is unique. In this case, identity. I think I start with identity, and then attached to that identity is reputation, and Our digital reputation is something that is very much currently not traced in in a in a good way. It's fragmented across all the different applications and websites we use. It's lacking um, the ability to take it with me, take it with me as I just go around the internet. But how does reputation, digital reputation, play a, a part of this? you know nft identity use case we're talking about
0: so i think identity is like you know even when i wrote about this identity is more than just like the government document right and identity can mean different things in different contexts so as i said like a bank statement might be is also a form of identity proof when i think about reputation or like on chain reputation the first thought that comes to my mind is something like a credit score it's again something where in the off-chain world or in the traditional world, you have these centralized bodies having a way to determine your credit score, which is opaque, and it depends on uh, only information that they have access to, not everything that is associated to your actual identity or your actual you know, financials. I think the same is true for... For various kinds of of things i'm I'm having a hard time placing like what other kinds of reputation I would care about, but like another example might be a social reputation right so again, like I don't know how Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or other platforms. Um, flag you for different things. Like they, you know, if you're if you're offensive to people, if you get into fights, if you like, you know, if you have, do hates, sp- have, you know, share hate speech or other kinds of things, they definitely flag you, but it's very opaque and you don't actually know how or why or anything like that. Um, and I think that those are some of the kind of ways where I see reputation plugging into your online identity. You know, there's good and bad there. So I, I don't know if you always want want that.
1: Totally. No, there, there's definitely good and bad. And I think with, we talked about it on a different episode of the pod, the reputation that is associated with whatever that future version of NFT identity looks like should have some kind of user permissions to be able to choose what is shared publicly. So because I think you could get pieces of information that you don't want necessarily portrayed on a public profile there's got to be some kind of flagging mechanisms so that the user gets to choose it's not like third parties are just attributing reputation to that piece of data that nft but i think we we might think about identity identity slightly different i know we were talking pre-recording around around this like i think about it very much right now in the form of nft domains as the kind of application of this use case right you, you let me know what you think on this so with an nft domain like an unstoppable domain here, I'd say this starts off at the high level of you can attach your wallet address to it. So instead of sending crypto to OX123, I can send it to shiv.nft, right? So you would now have a little bit of a more human-readable form of your your, your address, right? On top of that, you might have on-chain activity. You're a writer. So let's say you've published on Mirror like 10 times, like you might be a mirror super user, I'm just taking a guess at that. And you might have a, a mirror super user badge to it, right. So I can see your your online name, shiv.nft. And then I can also see your transaction history as surfaced reputation, it surfaced a badge that you are a writer. So that kind of gives me insight into who you are. And then, you know, maybe the another component of this identity is you can attach like an email address to it. So now when you go and log in on a, on a decentralized application, they can communicate back and forth to you. Because right now, when you go to connect to a DAP, connecting with Wallet, there's actually no, and I'm kind of interested on your take here, especially with your software engineering background, like when you connect with Wallet to a DAP, there's no way for two-way communication to happen. Sure, the DAP can maybe see um, a little bit of high-level information around um, actually it not fully sure, but they can see what other NFTs you hold, or maybe they can see what wallets you're transacting between. But they have no way of saying, hey, Shiv, what do you think about this feature we just announced? Or um, if you'd like to be an early access user to this, you can get, you know, 20% off uh, your next purchase. So I, I see that NFT domain being a the NFT application of around identity here because it can give you a lot of different things we're talking about.
0: I think when it comes to identity, like I said, there's so many forms of identity or so many forms of linking your off chain identity to your on chain identity. so the one I mentioned might have been you know government government sponsored identity, but equally, I think this concept that a wallet is anonymous and and has no person attached to it while that's like good for certain things you know and a lot of people who are originally believers in crypto like kind of uh, are pretty attached to this i think it also holds us back from a lot right so if you want if you truly want uh, crypto to become mainstream and you want adoption and you want like it to become integrated with real world use cases you will need Wallets to have an identity associated to it because there's a lot of use cases where you need to know who the person is. And I think we're going to see that with regulation too. But even just like you said, you know, just sending money to someone. I think all of us in crypto who've sent money have had that experience where you send money to an address and it doesn't show up after a minute. And now you're freaking out and like, You know, you're just kind of like having a mini panic attack about your money kind of having disappeared because you messed up a character or something. It's pretty clear that like for crypto to become more usable and you want people like actual people interacting with this world, especially if we have like social use cases and other kinds of uh, use cases, it will mean you know human readable names which is exactly what an nft username or an nft domain is right so i i'm totally convinced that that'll happen i think the big question in my mind is what are the most important linkages that you want that nft domain to have and like and that's that's probably going to be the starting point right like which are, which ones are the most important so maybe it's payments maybe it's like what you said about communication um, uh I, I even think there's a possibility that like so i've seen some i've seen a protocol working on uh an email uh, sort of an email solution for web3 where like you can have you know two way messaging between uh between different wallet addresses but i even think it's possible that we see something where you know you link your wallet address to a discord account just like sign sign in discord with like your with your wallet okay, now any dApp can communicate with you in Discord, right? Because they know that like all these users who have a Discord account linked to their wallet are people who are our users and we can communicate with them. So it could be it could be something like that where, you know, you link to different social profiles that you have, um, which might be Discord, it might be email, it might be something else. And then that creates like a communication layer in Web3. Mm-hmm.
1: 100%. Yeah, email is definitely something we're thinking about at UD. And it's like the, the feature we rolled out recently is you can get a private email address that's tied to your NFT domain. And so in your profile in the back end, you link your personal email. But when you give the email out to dApps and whatnot, they see they see the private one, the um, like NFT at ud.me. And when they communicate, it it forwards to your personal. And when you respond, that response comes back through the uh, through the private NFT name email. So it's kind of a way of giving your personal one, but using that third intermediary email with your uh, domain name. But yeah, communication is going to be important.
0: Oh, that's great. That's a great one. I didn't know about that.
1: Yeah, and so. You know, as we talk about this reputation, as I was reading through your Future of NFTs thread, one thing you talked about was soulbound tokens. And uh, I remember in there, we talked about degrees, diplomas, also like badges. And you had a really good example around Upwork and Fiverr, right, and being able to – and data portability. So I'd like to kind of jump into a little bit of that data portability topic since it – I think it's related to this identity thing we're talking about and being able to take some certifications – of work done with you around the web. Uh, Could you break that down a little bit for me?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone who doesn't know a soulbound token is essentially just an NFT with one extra condition that you cannot transfer it to another wallet, right? That's the only difference uh, between a soulbound token and NFT. And where that becomes useful is things where, you know, you don't want it to be transferable. So degrees is one that, you know, clearly comes to my mind because it was a certificate that was awarded to you. If I can now go and sell my Columbia degree on the open market, sure, it sounds great to me, but uh, it's probably not what they want, right? So I think that that's, you know, a pretty obvious use case. I think when it comes to data portability, it's, um, it's slightly different from the soulbound tokens piece but the essential concept is um so when I write on Twitter, Twitter actually owns the content, right? Twitter can modify it, censor it, alter it, remove it um, as they please. Same is true for pretty much any other Web2 platform. You know, if you post a photo on Instagram, Instagram owns the photo, you are allowed to view it, and it comes under your profile, but it's actually owned by Instagram. In Web3, if you have something in your wallet, you own that thing, right? So so c- similarly, you know, if you think about writing, uh, if I write an article on a Web3 platform and that article is represented by an NFT that is in my wallet, I actually own that NFT. And the the platform that I write it on is just a view layer that allows other people to view what I have written. It, it's just giving people uh, visibility into the things that are in my wallet with a nice UX around it. But it doesn't give them any right to, act, to modify, control, access, or remove or censor anything that you know, that I have. So the same is true for, you know, for things like work that you've done. So for example, the Upwork example that I gave is if you go and work on Upwork for like, you know, for months and, you know, you build up a good reputation there, it means nothing for your Fiverr profile or for any other place where you might be trying to get freelance work, right? And so similarly, like if I, you know, build a, a Twitter following, and then two years later, Twitter isn't the dominant social network, or worse, if I get deplatformed, um, which, you know, it happened to Bankless. They got deplatformed from YouTube for a while. And that's like, you know, you put in years of work, you have a whole business relying on this uh, on this marketing channel that you've built, um, and yet you are at the mercy of of a platform. And you don't own your data, you don't own your followers, you don't own anything. So that's, I think, the problem with Web2, with these Web2 platforms. And there's a protocol called Lens Protocol, which is actually building building a solution to this. They're building a social graph for Web3 um, where you would own all the social relationships that you have and apps can build on top of Lens Protocol. So you can have a YouTube kind of thing built on top or, or Twitter or Facebook or anything. But with the you know key difference being that you own the data and you own you own your content and you own your social relationships, um, and the platform has no power over those. Yeah, so I think that's that's kind of how I
1: view this. Totally. Yeah, I think the data portability aspect of this all is super interesting and and just so true. I mean, just going back to that like Upwork and Fiverr example, how you build up all these reviews and positive engagement on one platform. And if you want to go to the other, you're almost starting as a complete novice, someone who has no experience. And being able to take that experience with you to the next website is a big, big unlock.
0: Just to jump in, another use case for the same or like another example of the same thing is YouTube takes like a 30, maybe 40% take rate, right? So any ad revenue generated on YouTube, they take 30%. But YouTube has, I think, 2 billion daily active users, or maybe it's weekly or monthly, but that's that's a lot. If, if tomorrow YouTube decided to say we're taking a 90% take rate, I don't think there's much that creators can do. You know, it it might take years for another platform to come and overthrow YouTube. And and if it did, then all the creators who exist on YouTube are basically starting from scratch on this new platform, right? So millions of people who have their, you know, who share content and have some value to the content they've created, they don't actually own that value. It's a bigger problem than it initially sounds like when you start to really uh, think about it.
1: Yeah. And what you're you know, some of the topics you're talking about there is the creator economy. And it's interesting. I think something interesting about the creator economy is it's that what you just described there is uh, such a prime example of why NFTs and user-owned smart contracts are really good solutions to someone who creates on the internet. And a lot of people hear that. And I almost wonder if it falls on deaf ears sometimes because most people aren't creators they're consumers and yet on the same note there are millions and millions of creators out there and it's it's a growing field i mean you and me are part of it so the the people talking about the power of the creator economy are oftentimes creators consumers aren't always thinking about you know what it what that means for the people who are producing the work that they're getting the pleasure of enjoying but let's talk about another use case here i want to talk about tickets. It's not a sexy use case necessarily, but I think it's going to be one that we're going to see very soon. It just feels like it makes sense. It's something that's easy to implement here. But is is ticketing just the next mainstream use case we're going to see in like, tr- maybe even this year, 2022, maybe 2023?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think ticketing is a pretty easy one, right? It's a pretty easy one to see the value of... Um... And it's also like it's a digital asset, right? Like most of these tickets are digital assets. It's a lot harder to tokenize a a non-digital, like a physical asset. Like if you think about something like real estate, the tokenizing that is a whole different beast than tokenizing something like a ticket, right? Which is already a digital asset. So I think that makes it like a really easy one to implement because it's a a strict improvement from the existing system, right? And there's a few reasons for that. One, you get a marketplace with inherent buyer and seller protection the smart contract isn't going to release the ticket to someone who hasn't paid the full amount. And it's not going to give you a fake ticket because it's publicly verifiable. And you also can't, like, again, you can't have fakes, right? You can't, someone can't spoof the ticket because it's very easy to see that this is from the the actual collection where the tickets came from. It's tradable. The creators of the ticket can get royalties from it, which is, which is great for them. Why would they not want royalties? You know, and you get the kind of the market pricing right it's like when you when you go and try to buy and sell tickets on something like facebook marketplace or craigslist those are inefficient markets because people they are they are not meant for what you're looking for and they are not the only market that you're looking that you're trying to use to find these things so it's fragmented it's like non standardized there's you know there's just a lot of problems with buying and selling on those and i personally have experienced those when trying to you know in the past i bought some concert tickets it was one of those like pay me on paypal pay me half on paypal then i'll email you the ticket then you pay me the other half and it's just a nightmare you know i think eventbrite and you know some of these have solutions for that like transferable tickets but it's just it just doesn't work the same way so i think nft tickets is a since it's a strict improvement with no downside, I think it's a pretty easy one for us to see in the near future.
1: Totally, and and a point that you also listed on the Twitter thread that I loved was talking about his like having the historical data, being able to see directly who are the owners of those tickets and and the creator having access to that. Because right now, when you sell it through Ticketmaster or whatever, the artist or the Oftentimes, the people putting on the event that tickets are being sold for, they're not having access to that information. So now if 100 people buy my ticket, I can then airdrop them maybe some kind of commemorative artwork or I can send them a a ticket to my future show. If you hold a a ticket to the first one, maybe you get a free ticket to the 10-year anniversary, you know, something like that.
0: Yeah. And it's also like a badge, right? People want to show like their loyalty. People want to show that they were like, it's a collectible almost that I was at this concert in 2018 or, and like you said, yeah, it gives them a direct channel to communicate with people who were verified to be their fans.
1: I could totally see tickets just, like just us having portfolios of literally thousands of tickets spread across tons of different categories. And eventually going back to your UX comment, like eventually there'll be better UX layers within wallets or new social media apps where solely based off of like the tickets you have in your wallet and being able to to share them in different different views. Like you're going to, I feel like you're going to have tickets for going to the gym. Like, yeah, I have seven hundred fifty two gym tickets you know what I mean or my favorite park near my house like I could I could like scan my phone and get like an nft for every time I've hung out of that park and I don't know st- just tickets for every I could see literally tickets for everything free ones and paid ones
0: yeah absolutely I've seen like this concept being called proof of attendance I mean it's interesting because it doesn't sound like super exciting or sexy right now but then when you think about like well, if you actually had all of these, what can you actually build on top of this? And what can that mean? A uh, lot of cool stuff
1: that comes up. Awesome. Well, maybe we have time for one more question before we get into one, two, web three. So I'm going to give you the choice here. Do you want to give me like the one minute TLDR and real estate NFT use cases or throw out a trend that you see, you think we're going to see grow to mass adoption in the next like year or two?
0: Let's talk about real estate.
1: (laughs) Okay, cool. So yeah, give me like the 60 second breakdown of why tokenizing real estate is helpful.
0: Sure. So physical assets are much harder to tokenize. And that's because you don't actually have like NFTs as of right now are not like uh, accepted in court, right? There's no, they are not accepted as proof of ownership in court. So when you buy an NFT of a physical property, you don't have any, grounds to go and say that I actually own that property or own a piece of it. But if if we take, put that aside and say that we will eventually get to a world where they are accepted in court or there is a legal way around this, people are working on that, you get a lot of benefits from it, right? So you get the fractionalization, you get liquidity, you get, they plug and play into other smart contracts. So this would be composability. Simple example of that is you can instantly get a loan against your property token. You can even allow people to invest in specific neighborhoods or specific properties, or which today, the only ways to invest in... Property would be a like you know buy a house either through a mortgage or in cash or use a REIT which is a real estate investment trust where you're trusting someone else to pick what to buy and you don't actually have granular control on what you want to invest in. So from an investment perspective, it's a pretty clear value add. Like you go, you can pick specifically which property or a part of which property. You can create bundles of different properties. I think there's all kinds of Great things that'll come with that, but it's—I think that's at least five years away, if not more, because we—it's so subject to local laws.
1: Yeah, cool. Thanks for the breakdown. That was the NFT use case section of this podcast. Awesome stuff. I think we covered like five, maybe six or seven. I, I'm gonna have to go back and listen through and count it up uh, use cases, but really helpful breakdown, Shiv. So thank you for that. Let's let's close out with the one, two, web three. I got three rapid fire questions for you to end the pod. The first one being who's an influential web3 creator, entrepreneur, or collector that's inspired or educated you?
0: Naval, Balaji, Bunk6529, yeah,
1: Chris Dixon. That might have been the first Balaji shout out on the pod. So Naval and Chris Dixon and and Punk6529 are all our regulars. Also fun fact for you, Naval and Balaji are also investors in Unstoppable. So second question, favorite NFT, what's what's yours?
0: To be honest, I'm not a big NFT collector. So I I don't have a good one for you here. I would say it's my domain.
1: Cool. All right, (laughs) there you go. Third question in five years, what's the craziest thing that we'll be doing in the metaverse that people just aren't thinking about yet?
0: I have a few wacky ones that I'll share here. I think microtransactions become, uh, can become like a really big thing. And it may not be an NFT thing. It may not be a metaverse thing. But like one, a couple of examples that I think about are Um, You know, when you go to the New York Times and it says subscribe, we might we might see a world where you can do a microtransaction where it's a fraction of a cent instead of subscribing on like a monthly or weekly basis. You know, we've never had the ability to do that before because it's too inefficient to do. But if we have crypto where you have blockchains which can allow, you know, free transactions, then that then those kind of opportunities open up. And an even wackier one might be that if we have self-driving cars, they could be bidding through like a similar system for like what lane they want to drive on. And all of that is something that you can only power through crypto. So if we want to get real wacky, I got some good ones oh, there. Oh
1: gosh, I don't yeah. want to be in a self-driving car and have to decide if I'm paying like $10 or $20 to get in the fast lane. But uh, no, that's the microtransaction. I think your car will
0: decide for you. You just oh, set Oh no, road. the car's going to decide for me. Oh,
1: yeah. that, that makes sense. Yeah, you set your limits, just like you set your gas limits and then uh, you see where your transaction falls in the queue.
0: Yeah. Cool.
1: Good, good takes there. I love it. I love it. Well, Shiv, can you end here and let us know how we can connect with you, find you online and keep up with what you're working on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm most active on Twitter. So that would be the best place to find me. My handle is my full name, Shiv Sakuja. If you look up Shiv Sak, you'll find me. Yeah, I mean, I'm most active on Twitter. So if you follow me there, you'll get all the updates on what I'm working on.
1: Awesome. Well, That's it for this week's episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please give Shiv a follow on Twitter, subscribe to the Unstoppable Pod, and if you enjoyed it, leave a review. Really love reading through all those, and it helps us grow to continue to reach more crypto curious and native folks. So with that, I'll see you in the metaverse and on next week's podcast. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.